This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. Our job now is to dream big. Delivered at TED conferences. To bring about the future we want to see. Around the world. To understand who we are. From those talks, we bring you speakers and ideas that will surprise you. You just don't know what you're going to find. Challenge you. We truly have to ask ourselves, like, why is it noteworthy? And even change you. I literally feel like I'm a different person. Yes. (laughs) Do you feel that way? Ideas worth spreading. From TED and NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and I think you'll agree that life as we used to know it has pretty much disappeared, for now at least. Almost all of us have in some way been affected by the COVID-19 crisis. For me, well, I've been home splitting my time between hosting this show and helping my kids adjust to a world where they only see their classmates on a screen. And it's made me think a lot about the episode that the TED Radio team and I made last year. We called it Teaching for Better Humans. And it's about how we can help kids learn to cope with life's ups and downs and deal with an increasingly complicated future. Because now with COVID-19, it feels like that complicated future is here. And with it, virtual schools, remote learning. For the past few weeks, just about every kid, parent, and teacher has had to do their part to usher in an abrupt but necessary new era for education. Hi, um, my name is Tanya LeClaire. I am a digital learning coach at Seoul Foreign School in Seoul, Korea. I'm a pre-kindergarten teacher at a preschool in D.C. My name is Michael Hernandez, and I'm a high school teacher in the Los Angeles area. We put out the call to educators to tell us how it's been going. There have been a lot of challenges. This all came on really fast. Um, We basically got together and started drawing up policies and guidelines and kind of trying to draw everything up from scratch. My dining room table is not my classroom, and uh, I miss my classroom. It's really highlighted the fact that we've been caught flat-footed and haven't really evolved maybe as much as we could have. Teachers have had some ridiculous moments. Going to classes and the teacher would be like, yeah, one of the kids muted me. I can't tell who it is. I think my students love sleeping um, in. (laughs) It's their number one thing that they like. They've also had some incredible bright spots. Every day at closing meeting, I use that as an opportunity to just have a moment of positive affirmations where I'll have kids like repeat after me something like, I am creative, and telling their caregiver, you're being so creative taking care of me. They've also had um, some interesting breakthroughs. I've really been impressed with how teachers have taken this on. um, I'm actually really excited about this disruption that's happened to the education system, and I know it's like frustrating for a lot of us. One of the great innovations that's going to come out of this is we will never go back to school the way it was. That last teacher is Richard Kulata, and actually he doesn't teach in a classroom anymore. He's now the CEO of the nonprofit ISTE, the International Society of Technology in Education. There's a time as we adjust to this new world that can be stressful, and that's just going to take some handholding and some some getting through. But another thought too, just just something to keep in mind here is I think it's going to be super exciting because all of a sudden we're going to have this conversation about uh, what what expectations are from students when they walk back into the classroom. And I think some things that they have just put up with for years and years because they never know the difference um, may suddenly feel really strange. And that's the model of education for the future that we really uh, need to get to and have needed to get to for many years. It can be hard to think about the future when you're just getting through today. 
So we want to revisit our episode, Teaching for Better Humans, and take this moment to consider how we can change the way we educate to help kids and young adults thrive. You'll hear some of the conversations we recorded last year, but also new ideas that reflect our strange new circumstances. And we're going to start with virtual learning. Because think about it, millions of teachers were recently asked to take what they were doing in the classroom and translate it for the screen within days. Many of them, Richard says, are now figuring out how to make school work online on the fly. Yeah, and they're scrambling. I mean, learning is an inherently social uh, activity. And so often when we start to move over to online learning, we look at the learning process and we just immediately think of the content. And we, you know, scan the content, we make it available online. But content, you know, that is, it's just a really thin veneer of the overall education experience. And if that's the only part, if the content is the only part that we're making available, it's just not effective learning. You have to think about how do you make sure there's still times where everybody can get together in a live space? How do you create activities that are not just reading a worksheet that you've uploaded online? Okay, so can you give me an example of what online learning looks like at its best and maybe how we parents can help? Yeah, so um, kids can be interviewing each other or their family members and editing and creating videos. They can be designing campaigns to help uh, address an an issue in their community. Many of them have a yard outside or a park next to their their house. My kid the other day, my uh, eight-year-old, um, found a, a bug uh, in his room. And, and so we had this moment of, oh, we got this bug here and, and we could have just <laughs> thrown it out. But instead I said, you know, what type of bug is that? I don't know. Well, how do we look it up? And so you know, we took a picture of it. We went online and searched for it and found out it was a brown marmorated stink bug. And we learned that <gasps> I stink found one bugs the other are... day and I did the bad version of that. I flushed well, it down but, the But toilet. I mean, it's fascinating. Whoa. We learned there's so many things about <laughs> stink bugs I never knew. That moment, that silly moment, one is it, tur- it became a learning moment, but it also taught my kid. It modeled that this device that I hold in my pocket, it's not just for playing games. It's not just for calling people and communicating. It's a tool to make uh, more sense out of the world around us. But those are the types of activities that we have to be starting to plan now because they take some thinking. So my concern has been, as a tech journalist, the human component, right? And a lot of teachers have told me that as they've brought more and more screens into the classroom, that they have actually had to start teaching human things that they've never had to teach before in the past, like how to have eye contact with someone, how to listen to someone. And so how do we teach those human competencies if everybody's not together? So there's a couple things here that that are important to talk about. One of them is what those competencies look like they still exist, right? Those human competencies, how to be a good, engaged human being. It still exists in a virtual space. We just have to teach it a little differently. Mm. So we talk about five critical qualities of digital citizens. And we say that we need to teach kids to be inclusive, informed, engaged, balanced, and alert. 
It's knowing how to, you know, help make your community a better place when you're online. It's it's knowing how to create an environment that is inclusive of people with a variety of different viewpoints and backgrounds online. It's knowing how to uh, recognize information that is true, information that has biases in it, and, and make decisions about what information is more valuable in what circumstance. Those are the types of skills that we need to be teaching. And if we do, then our virtual environment becomes a community that is rich and engaging and supportive. Okay, so Richard, going back to this idea of whether there's a silver lining that can come out of these bizarre days and weeks, when this is over and kids go back to school, do you think that the classroom experience will be dramatically different? Oh, yeah. So, you know, we'll go back to school, of course, and school is critically important, but we'll go back to a school with a realization, with a reality that the world is a virtual world, that these kids are dual citizens. They live in two worlds at all times, and they always will in the future. And if we can recognize that and we can leverage that uh, to make school engaging, rich, meaningful environment that empowers kids, not just to soak up information that we give them, but to solve problems and to communicate and collaborate with their peers around the world. That's the exciting part. And we are just at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what we're going to do. Teachers are the most creative people on the planet. And once they get the tools in front of them and they know and are comfortable with the tools, the amount of creativity that we're going to see is just going to be unbelievable. That's Richard Kulata, the CEO of ISTE. And thank you so much to all the teachers who shared their experiences with us. We also want you to know that TED-Ed has a new initiative for learning at home. Find out more at tededathome.com. Okay, so this new coronavirus means that teachers are using new tools to teach. But what about what they teach? Well, along with math and grammar, some are trying to help kids understand what COVID-19 is, adding pandemics to a list of other tough topics that affect kids, like inequality and race. How do we even begin to talk about these heavy subjects that we grown-ups often struggle with? I mean, think about how much media and how many messages adults soak up every single day. And kids are exposed to the exact same stuff that adults are exposed to. This is teacher Liz Kleinrock. She developed school curricula. Before that, she spent a decade in the classroom. Yet we have this misconception that kids tune it out or don't care or kind of glass over when, you know, we have those conversations at the dinner table or when, like, the radio's on in the car. Like, mm mm-mm. Kids pick up on all of it. Some of Liz's students were interviewed for a mini-documentary specifically about how she helps them think critically about our history and how it relates to today. Some people actually liked having slaves to own slaves because they worked for them. And some people were just afraid to speak out for them or do anything to help them. I can't imagine how it would be like if my family was not like, if like your If you just separated from your family, like, just, you're separated. I have these kids who would never raise their hand in, like, a traditional reading or writing or math lesson, but if you ask them about Black Lives Matter or what's happening, our government, they all know something and they all want to share. I mean, seeing all these videos of people getting discriminated because of their race, religion, orientation, it really changes my perspective of life. So I think it's actually a lot safer to have those conversations, you know, up front. But having tough conversations up front with kids is totally different than having them with adults. 
in lots of unpredictable and cringeworthy ways. Liz Kleinrock tells the story from the TED stage. So a few years ago, I was beginning a new unit on race with my fourth graders. And I had the type of moment that every teacher has nightmares about. One of my students had just asked the question, why are some people racist? And another student, let's call her Abby, had just raised her hand and volunteered, maybe some people don't like black people because their skin is the color of poop. So, as if on cue, my entire class exploded. Half of them immediately started laughing, and the other half started yelling at Abby and shouting things like, oh my god, you can't say that, that's racist. So just take a second to freeze this scene in your mind. There's a class of nine and 10-year-olds, and half of them are in hysterics because they think Abby has said something wildly funny. And the other half are yelling at her for saying something offensive. And then you have Abby sitting there, completely bewildered, because in her mind, she doesn't understand the weight of what she said and why everybody is reacting this way. And then you have me, the teacher, standing there in the corner, like about to have a panic attack. When we come back, what Liz said to her fourth graders in that moment, and also how she's talking to kids about one of the toughest things that we are all dealing with right now, the coronavirus. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. On the show today, Teaching for Better Humans. You're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Zoom. Zoom Phone is a top-tier cloud phone solution with the same ease of use and reliability that you've come to expect from Zoom meetings. Zoom Phone works seamlessly within the Zoom app as your business phone system to make and receive phone calls, capture call recordings, and easily escalate to video if the need arises. And it works wherever you are in the office or on your mobile device. Sign up for Zoom Phone online at zoom.com and meet happy with Zoom. Thanks also to LegalZoom. LegalZoom makes it easy for Americans to set up their estate plans without leaving their homes. Don't know the difference between a last will or living trust? What about an advanced healthcare directive? LegalZoom can help. They're not a law firm, but you can get started quickly online and also get advice through their network of independent attorneys. Learn more about estate plans and how you can speak to an attorney for advice at LegalZoom.com. When the economy goes haywire, Planet Money is here to make sense of it for you. From the big bailouts to the tiny details of a vaccine stockpile. One of the first things we did was secure a large number of chicken flocks. So these are like hard-working government chickens? They are hard-working government chickens. That's NPR's Planet Money podcast. Listen now. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. On the show today, Teaching for Better Humans. Before the break, a fourth grader called Abby had just said something that half of her class found wildly funny, while the rest found it extremely offensive. And their teacher, Liz Kleinrock, was on the verge of a panic attack. I loved being in your head as a teacher. Like, I kind of felt like, oh, maybe that's what my teachers were thinking. How do you take an extremely uncomfortable moment and in a split second decide what to do with us? Like, what what were the options, did you think? I could 
chastise her and say, like, you know, that's just incredibly inappropriate. Like, you never, ever say something like that, which is definitely part of the conversation that needs to be had about why that language is harmful. But if you don't explain why it's harmful, it doesn't really do any good. All the kid has learned is, oh, if I ever talk about this, that it's bad. Mm. And something I didn't share in the talk is that that student who made the comment isn't white. She's actually a student of color. Mm. Um, and I thought a lot in that moment about the way that I now interact with her is really also going to show, be a model for the rest of the kids, too. Mm. I definitely don't think it's okay to shame people for where they're at, but it's absolutely necessary to question why people are at a certain place. And if this was truly her first time talking about it, yelling at her was going to leave a really, really big imprint. Like, I even think about how I view myself as a math student because I had one teacher in elementary school who, like, made me cry when it came to math because I didn't understand and how I then internalized, well, I must be a really bad math student. And this has a lot higher stakes than whether or not I could understand, like, a multiplication algorithm. You know, this is something that could really continue to follow her and determine whether she was going to be willing to engage or disengage from these conversations moving forward. Hmm. So in that five seconds, the weight of this girl's relationship to talking about race is on your shoulders. You reflect on that. And then you look at the kids in your classroom and you look at her. And what do you say? And this is a really important teachable moment because there is some truth and validity into what Abby is saying, that people have believed this. And some components of racism are fueled by thoughts and beliefs just like this. And that's why we have to talk about it. It's meaningful. It's, you know, terrifying and deeply personal. But we have to take these opportunities to learn. As I watched the conversation really marinate with my students, I began to wonder how many of my students have assumptions just like Abby? And what happens when those assumptions go unnoticed and unaddressed as they so often do? Conversations around race, for example, have their own specific language and students need to be fluent in this language in order to have these conversations. Now, I also know that these types of conversations can seem really, really intimidating with our students, especially with young learners. But I have taught first through fifth grades, and I can tell you, for example, that I'm not going to walk into a first grade classroom and start talking about things like mass incarceration. But even a six-year-old first grader can understand the difference between what is fair, people getting what they need, and equal, when everybody gets the same thing, especially goodie bags at birthday parties. Now, first graders can also understand the difference between a punishment and a consequence. And all of these things are foundational concepts that anyone needs to understand before having a conversation about mass incarceration in the United States. Some people might think that kindergartners or first graders are too young to have conversations around racism. But also tell you that young kids understand how people are similar and different and what it means to have power when other people don't. When we have these conversations with students at a young age, it actually takes away some of that taboo feeling when those topics come up at a later age. It's almost like you just make space in your classroom for things that are often shoved under the rugs, things that we don't make space for because it makes us feel uncomfortable. 
because we don't necessarily have the answer of how to make it better. But you, you try to make space. I try, and I try to also be very authentic with my students when they ask a question that I don't know the answer to, to be very honest with them and not make something up or that I'm the authority on all things related to race and equity because I'm not. There's still so many things I'm unlearning and new things that I need to understand because it's hard to navigate by yourself. And I think there's a lot of self-work that teachers need to be doing and unpacking their own identities and their understanding of what it means to have an anti-racist classroom. And Mm. if you're not doing that self-work, having the conversations with kids is going to be a lot harder because these are definitely parallel tracks of work that need to be going on at the same time. I mean, I got to say, I feel for teachers right now, not only are they pretty poorly paid, at least here in the United States, but they don't get a lot of respect from parents, from municipal governments. They work so hard. How do you even begin to say to teachers, yeah, so also you need to be exploring your own sense of identity. Um, Could you do that, please, while you're also grading all the papers for tomorrow? Like, how do you even start to have this conversation with other teachers? It's really, really hard. But I think that the curriculum and the lessons that I've created really try to embrace like diversity and equity and inclusion as a lens, not as a separate component of the day. Like I'm not writing social justice time from nine to 10 o'clock on the agenda. <laughs> it can really be something as simple as who are the authors and the stories and the voices that you're amplifying in class. Like an example that I like to give is one of our curricular units is supposed to be about opinion writing. And the sample unit that comes with the curriculum, um, you're supposed to structure this lesson about what's your favorite ice cream flavor and why. Which for fourth graders, to me, that just seems like such a waste of an opportunity to have them write about something that's more important than that. But I think it also takes a lot for adults to be brave and have those conversations. Well, yeah, which makes me wonder, like, do you ever get pushback from parents who maybe feel uncomfortable with your methods or maybe like, listen, just stick to like reading, writing and arithmetic. Okay, Uh, I'll handle the other stuff for my kid. Yeah. I mean, I get a lot about education not being politicized. um, And my response to them is usually education is inherently political. School funding, how much teachers get paid, which textbooks we use, which holidays we celebrate, like who is visible in the classroom and who isn't. Those are all political decisions. Yeah. I mean, it's really like you said before, that kids already pick up on all of these ideas, political or not. Yep. I mean, I had one student who said that we have the right to have these conversations because it's going to be us. It's going to be our life in the future. You know, how can we be prepared if we can't even have these conversations or we don't even know what's going on? And he's right. He's absolutely right. And that wasn't like an 18-year-old. No, he nine. (laughs) (laughs) That's Liz Kleinrock. Since Liz and I spoke last year, the coronavirus has, of course, totally changed the education landscape. So I called her to ask how she thinks we should talk about the pandemic with kids while also dealing with our own anxiety. There's this aspect of caring for the people in our lives, but also the self-care part is so important, too. At my school, we always talked a lot about emotional contagion. Mm, That's a good phrase, emotional contagion. (laughs) Yeah, and recognizing that kids are extremely intuitive. They're very sensitive. They're really going to pick up on the energy that adults are putting out, even if it is unspoken, if it isn't verbalized. Thinking about how 
as a classroom teacher, I would try to conduct myself during fire drills or earthquake drills or active shooter drills. Like you Mm -hmm. want kids to take it seriously. You don't want to panic them or overwhelm them, but let them know this is something that we do have to take seriously and we're not playing around. It's like, I feel like I'm in an airplane and we've hit turbulence and I'm watching the flight attendants for clues. I feel like that's the situation kids are in watching the adults. Like we're in this airplane together and they're watching us. Should I be worried about this? You seem calm. Okay, then I'll be calm. It's just normal turbulence, you know. (laughs) It's hard though. Yeah, it is. And again, like having no precedent, it's really challenging. Like the closest comparison, and I wasn't a teacher then, was 9-11 and just being very uncertain about what was going to happen. And I know that schools were really scrambling back in 2001 when this happened. Like, are we going to continue classes? How can we best support our communities? How can we directly support families who might be very much directly impacted by everything happening? But something of this magnitude... It's totally uncharted territory. Like we're all trying to figure it out as we go and just trying to be the best models for our students as possible. My husband and I really had a debate over whether to be reassuring and say you are safe, you are fine, or to acknowledge like, yes, you're scared. And that's a normal feeling to have right now. This is a scary time. Yeah, I think there's definitely both that need to happen. You know, I don't think it's appropriate to lie to kids and, you know, give them false reassurance about things that we really don't know about. But also we can be really careful about what information we volunteer to them willingly. Something really important to keep in mind with kids is that there's no one right way to feel about everything. Mm -hmm. I've talked to students who are incredibly calm and seem even somewhat oblivious to everything happening. Mm -hmm. And then students who have really been panicking and experienced a lot of anxiety because school represents very different things to different students. Some might really view this as a vacation, as a break. And for some kids, this is the only place of consistency in their lives. You know, I keep thinking about Abby, the student who you talked about when we first spoke a couple months ago. And you kind of had the weight of her relationship with talking about race on your shoulders. What kinds of things might be weighing on teachers and parents trying to address coronavirus right now? I think trying to balance like gaining new information while being selective about what is being shared with kids. Kids are, you know, picking up like the bits and pieces of conversations or catching glimpses of headlines online. And there's a lot of great information out there and there's a lot of really awful misinformation too. And we're trying to just stay up to date about everything that's going on and giving our students and families who might not have the access to that information, letting them know what's happening in the best way possible. Liz Kleinrock is a writer and educator, and that documentary about how she teaches is called Ms. Liz's Allies. And you can see her full talk at TED.com. Right now, kids are finding out where they got into college, but don't know if they'll even be able to attend this fall. And seniors in high schools and universities, they don't know if they'll have graduation ceremonies this spring. Life is on hold. And a lot of these students may feel like they're not equipped to cope with the current situation, one that's completely out of their control. Because up until now, to succeed, they needed results in the form of hard numbers. Tis the season for standardized testing. And And how do we measure those results? Standardized tests. Standardized testing. Standardized exams. Testing, of course. Pass, and you move on to the next grade. Fail, and you still have some work to do. 
In 2015, by the time the typical high school senior graduated, they would have taken 112 standardized tests. SC Ready Test. Delaware Comprehensive Assessment. The FSA Language Arts Louisiana Education. And of course, you know, testing, getting a score, getting a metric, getting a grade is a very useful way to organize, right? To, to set students from the best to the worst and everywhere in between. That's Thomas Curran. He's a social psychologist who researches young people and perfectionism in the UK, US, and Canada. And you begin you can begin to see how that creates a um, reliance therefore on objective outcomes, on outcomes in tests and scores. And you can extend that to sport and other areas of young people's lives where ranking and categorization are now rife. Thomas says tests, sports, social media, and a winner-takes-all culture puts a lot of pressure on kids to constantly compare themselves to others. And so once people start to define themselves in those terms, and we're only really interested in how we do relative to others, then we're going to set high standards for ourselves because the only way in which we're able to succeed in this society is to achieve high scores, high grades, high performances. The consequences of not doing that is not only do we feel fall back in school, but that has implications for our college, which has implications for our future market price and the job market. So you can begin to see how we're teaching kids at almost every level that they need to succeed, that they need to do well. And that's one of the reasons why we think young people are beginning to internalize perfectionistic tendencies. Perfectionistic tendencies. Thomas says all of this has made young people more and more anxious. They want to be perfect. And wanting to be perfect is not only impossible, it can be dangerous. Thomas Curran continues this idea on the TED stage. It's quite remarkable how many of us are quite happy to hold our hands up and say we're perfectionists. But... There's an interesting and serious point because our begrudging admiration for perfection is so pervasive that we never really stop to question that concept in its own terms. We know from clinician case reports that perfectionism conceals a whole of psychological difficulties, including things like depression, anxiety, anorexia, bulimia, and even suicide ideation. And what's more worrying is that Over the last 25 years, we have seen perfectionism rise at an alarming rate. Suicide in the US alone increased by 25% across the last two decades. And we're beginning to see similar trends emerge across Canada and in my home country, the United Kingdom. In uh, my uh, role as mentor to many young people, I see these lived effects of perfectionism firsthand. And one student, sticks out in my mind very vividly. John, not his real name, was ambitious, hardworking and diligent, and on the surface he was exceptionally high achieving, often gaining first-class grades for his work. Yet no matter how well John achieved, he always seemed to recast his successes as abject failures, and in meetings with me he would talk openly about how he'd let himself and others down. John's justification was, was quite simple. How could he be a success when he was trying so much harder than other people just to attain the same outcomes? You see, John's perfectionism, his unrelenting work ethic was only serving to expose what he saw as his inner weakness to himself and to others. You know, it's interesting, when I was growing up, it was cool to be a slacker. But now I meet college students, people in their 20s all the time who are even starting their second or third business. 
I kind of think of it as the Mark Zuckerberg effect, this idea that inside of you is an entrepreneur who can just kill it. Zuckerberg and Musk, I mean, they seem like perfectionists, and that seems to be something really worth pursuing. That's a really good analysis, Amish, because we live in quite an individualistic culture and world where essentially we're the masters of our own destiny. Okay, it used to be the case that, particularly in the UK, but also also in the US, just after the war, where there was a kind of collective sense that you know together mm. we can prosper. Right? That's very different today, where the successes and failures are owned by ourselves, and how wealthy we are, or how much material advantage we have, is down to ourselves. And that's why you start to see uh, a lot of a lot of the young people engage in more entrepreneurial tendencies because frankly they have to if they don't there is no job with prospects or future that they can just walk into from college it's a postgraduate degree and then it's internships and then it's extra little bits and pieces on a cv that we can pick up and and this is this this is what i mean about pressures and expectations on young people have risen so much that it's understandable that they begin to engage in these behaviors and worry about the consequences because whereas before there was a safety net now there isn't and so there's an, there's a hell of a lot of pressure to succeed and that fear of failure we think is something that is going on underneath this rise in perfectionism coming up we hear more from thomas curran on perfectionism and embracing our imperfect selves on the show today, Teaching for Better Humans. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the American Jewish World Service, working together for more than 30 years to build a more just and equitable world. Learn more at AJWS.org. Right now, every household in the country is being asked to fill out the U.S. Census. It's the form that helps us determine how voting districts are redrawn, where to build public schools and hospitals, how to spend federal money. So why are some people afraid to fill it out? We're getting into all that this week on NPR's Code Switch podcast. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. And on the show today... How we can teach for better humans. We were just hearing from social psychologist Thomas Curran about perfectionism, how young people are taught, pressured, and influenced to try and be perfect. And I'm just going to say what everyone is thinking right now. I mean, social media, right? That must be playing a huge role here. I mean, social media is pervasive, particularly visual media forms of social media, things like Instagram and Snapchat, for instance, uh, are very, very laden with images of the perfect life, images of the perfect lifestyle that, of course, young people internalize, try to recreate, try to live up to. And that's social perfectionism, socially prescribed perfectionism, which is a sense that the external environment or others in the external environment expect us to be perfect. In 1989, just 9% of young people report clinically relevant levels of socially prescribed perfectionism. By 2017, that figure had doubled to 18%. And by 2050, projections based on the models that we tested indicate that almost one in three young people will report clinically relevant levels of socially prescribed perfectionism. 
This is the element of perfectionism that has the largest correlation with serious mental illness, and that's for good reason. Socially prescribed perfectionists feel an unrelenting need to meet the expectations of other people. And even if they do meet yesterday's expectation of perfection, they then raise the bar on themselves to an even higher degree because these folks believe that the better they do, the better that they're expected to do. This breeds a profound sense of helplessness and, and worse, hopelessness. You know, listening to you makes me feel, as a parent, kind of hopeless. It's really hard to know how to help your child. I have to I have a lot of uh, sympathy with parents because it's so tough. Like, it's so, so tough to not engage in over-monitoring, over-surveillance, because essentially... You know, in this in this culture, if 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 our kids fail, it's not just their failure; it's our failure too. And right. and so so parents do do take on their kids' successes and failures, and that naturally leads to um, more controlling forms of parenting. And there's a lot of data to to support that that is on the rise. That said, there are ways in which you can do that that don't necessarily emphasize uh, perfectionistic tendencies. Okay, so I, I want to hear them. What do you think parents should do? Try not to focus on the outcome. So when kids have done a test or they've got a metric or a score, it's important really to, as much as you can, downplay that score, particularly where in terms of where it sits relative to others. And ask your kids more about, well, what did you learn? Right. And really try and hone in on the actual purpose of education, and that is the topic and the, the source of learning itself. And then the second one, just just quickly, I think, is, is how we deal with failure. Right. Not being afraid to fail is really, really important uh, and and in particular, making sure that when we do encounter setbacks, that we're uh, compassionate on ourselves. How would you talk to a friend, for instance, who came with the same issues? You'd rationalise with them, you'd empathise with them, you'd, you'd essentially try to show them that you know it's not the end of the world. But we don't apply the same rules to ourselves. And so, talking to kids in those terms, you know, how would you treat other people if they if they came in at home with that grade? Would you? Mm. You know, you'd be very different to your friends as you would be to yourself. So it's it's really self compassionate. I think um, is is really really important and teaching them that there is there is so much joy in failure and there's so much joy in imperfection. You know, we're not we're not built to be perfect. If we were, we'd all be robots. I, I wonder how much you think vulnerability and and being able to laugh at ourselves matters in this conversation too. Oh, it's it's, it's huge, huge. Um, everybody. Every one of us has some areas in our lives that uh, we feel we're not quite as good at, or we we might uh, there might be specific triggers for us in some way, shape, or form. And actually, accepting vulnerability um, can be an excellent antidote to perfectionistic tendencies. Um, and so, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, vulnerability is really, really important. Not fearing failure, or almost celebrating imperfection and celebrating mistakes and setbacks because they're opportunities to learn and develop etc etc is is a really really important lesson thomas curran teaches at the london school of economics and political science watch his full talk and check out his research on perfectionism at ted.npr.org okay for the past hour or so we've been hearing about the formal informal even virtual ways that we teach. 
and how we can reassure kids that it's okay to look beyond academics and to value more than good grades. And I want to end the show on a little personal note. My nine-year-old daughter, nearly 10, loves to read, but she's not quite as fast as some of the other kids in her class. And she was feeling kind of bummed out about her slow reading until the day that author Jacqueline Woodson visited her school. Oh, really? Yeah. And you talked about slow reading, and she came home and she said to me, it's fine. It's just me. (laughs) It's how I read. And I love reading, and it's fine. And she just sort of skipped across the room and looked lighter. The burden was lifted because you told her it was okay to be different. So I want to thank you personally for giving her that gift. Well, thank her for hearing me. That completely makes my day. It's it's so Jacqueline has written dozens of books for children and young adults, including award winners like Miracles Boys and Brown Girl Dreaming. And my daughter's story reminded Jacqueline of her own slow reading. You know, my sister was brilliant. My brother was brilliant. They were off the charts readers. And here I was coming along and they're like, okay, what's wrong with this Woodson? (laughs) Um, Why is she reading differently? Why is she struggling with reading? And I read slowly with my finger following beneath the words. I read the same passages over and over again and really just inhaled narrative in this way that it was part of all my senses. Mm. And I never saw it as a struggle. It was how I read. Yeah. But, you know, when you're a child and someone is saying, this isn't how one should do this, you begin to question because it's adults and it's, it's their gaze that's the mirror for you at that age. Here's Jacqueline Woodson on the TED stage. The deeper I went into my books, the more time I took with each sentence, the less I heard the noise of the outside world. And so unlike my siblings who were racing through books, I read slowly, very, very slowly. I was that child with her finger running beneath the words until I was untaught to do this, told big kids don't use their fingers. In third grade, we were made to sit with our hands folded on our desk, unclasping them only to turn the pages, then returning them to that position. Our teacher wasn't being cruel. It was the 1970s, and her goal was to get us reading not just on grade level, but far above it. And we were always being pushed to read faster. But in the quiet of my apartment, outside of my teacher's gaze, I let my finger run beneath those words. With each rereading, I learned something new. Years later, I would learn of a writer named John Gardner who referred to this as the fictive dream or the dream of fiction. And I would realize that this was where I was inside that book, spending time with the characters and the world that the author had created and invited me into. As a child, I knew that stories were meant to be savored, that stories wanted to be slow, and that Some author had spent months, maybe years, writing them, and my job as the reader, especially as the reader who wanted to one day become a writer, was to respect that narrative. So what's the fictive dream for those who haven't heard of it? So the fictive dream is when you slip inside a story so deeply that you become a part of it and you don't even know anymore that you're not in the world. And the outside world, the quote-unquote real world, is not a part of 
your consciousness. And I think with a really good narrative, with a really good novel, a poem, or even graphic novel, you can go into that world and believe that you are a part of it, walking with the characters. Do you do you think like I mean obviously you are in touch with a lot of teachers and you do work in schools and um, is that something that you're seeing being taken on board this idea of reading slowly of savoring words of not rushing kids? I wish I was seeing it more, but when my kids were in fourth grade, their fourth grade test scores determined where they go to middle school. Their seventh grade test scores determined where they mm-hmm. go to high school. And and even now with um, the specialized schools and all the work we have to do around that, kids are yeah. stressed out. And I think that it's hard for teachers who have this um, curriculum that they have to adhere to, to then say, well, you know what, go take an hour with that book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that reading slowly needs to be expressed at home more and and kids should know that at the end of the day they can linger and they can relax yeah. somewhere but i know a lot of those young people are reading slowly and probably getting flack for it um and to just kind of show up and be a mirror and say look i read slowly too yeah and i'm here and there're going to be many many people saying this is not the way and push through that My finger beneath the words has led me to a life of writing books for people of all ages. Books meant to be read slowly, to be savored. My love for looking deeply and closely at the world, for putting my whole self into it, and by doing so, seeing the many, many, many possibilities of a narrative turned out to be a gift. Because taking my sweet time taught me everything I needed to know about writing. And writing taught me everything I needed to know about creating worlds where people could be seen and heard, where their experiences could be legitimized, and where my story, read or heard by another person, inspired something in them that became a connection between us, a conversation. And isn't that what this is all about? Finding a way at the end of the day to not feel alone in this world, and a way to feel like we've changed it before we leave. Sometimes we read to understand the future. Sometimes we read to understand the past. We read to get lost, to forget the hard times we're living in. And we read to remember those who came before us, who lived through something harder. I write for those same reasons. Before coming to Brooklyn, my family lived in Greenville, South Carolina, in a segregated neighborhood called Nickeltown. All of us there were the descendants of a people who had not been allowed to learn to read or write. Imagine that. The danger of understanding how letters form words. The danger of words themselves. The danger of illiterate people and their stories. As I began to connect the dots that connected the way I learned to write and the way I learned to read to an almost silenced people, I realized that my story was bigger and older and deeper than I would ever be. And because of that, it will continue. We come from a history as African Americans of people who are not even allowed to read in this country, right? Right. 
and then there was a high rate of literacy because of that not being allowed to read. And then slowly, you know, people came to reading and were hungry for it, or we stole reading, right? We, we read even under the threat of death, or we taught ourselves even under that threat. So it makes so much sense for me to take the time. And presumably, the way that someone who comes from a very different history or background can empathize or imagine or connect mm -hmm. to what you went through and what your ancestors have gone through is mm -hmm. through story. And frankly, those books didn't really exist when I was growing up. The books, though, like the ones I write? Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the reason I write them, because they didn't exist when I was growing up either. Um, you know, I grew up in Bushwick, and it was like, where were the books about a black girl growing up in Bushwick and a, in the home of a single mom and whose you know, best friend was Puerto Rican and who, so who grew up speaking Spanish and English? Like, I wanted to tell those stories. Right. I, w I was indignant. Like, how dare the world not have my narrative in it? <laughs> I'm I'm impressed that you were indignant, that you were, that, that who gave you that sense of like, hello, you all need to hear my story, too. I think I think what it was was my family saying you matter. Yeah. I mean, I came out, out of Jim Crow South, right? So I came from South Carolina to New York City. And so so I think somewhere along all those lines, people were saying, you matter. <laughs> and then to hear all your life that you matter and you're amazing and you're brilliant and you're beautiful. And then to not see that in the world, it's like, wait a second. Like, I know my people weren't lying. Right. So America must be lying. So as technology continues to speed ahead, I continue to read slowly, knowing that I am respecting the author's work and the story's lasting power. And I read slowly to drown out the noise and remember those who came before me, who probably carried with them the history of a narrative, knew deeply that writing it down wasn't the only way they could hold on to it, knew they could sit on their porches or their stoops at the end of a long day and spin a slow tale for their children. They knew they could sing their stories through the thick heat of picking cotton and harvesting tobacco, knew they could preach their stories and sew them into quilts, turn the most painful ones into something laughable, and through that laughter, exhale the history of a country that tried again and again and again to steal their bodies, their spirit, and their story. I read slowly to pay homage to my ancestors. Each time we read, write, or tell a story, we step inside their circle and the power of story lives on. Thank you. That's author Jacqueline Woodson. You can find her full talk at TED.com. Thanks so much for listening to our show on Teaching for Better Humans this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, J.C. Howard, Katie Monteleone, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Christina Kala, 
Kiera Brown, and Hannah Bolaños with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Matthew Cloutier. Our theme music was written by Ramteen Arablui. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. <laughs>